This is Rory Spiegel and Ryan Rudecki, and this is the Annals of Emergency Medicine podcast. It is November 2022, and we are back in Eden for another great episode. Ryan, how are you doing? So, do they celebrate Thanksgiving in New Zealand? I do. And as a holiday update for November, of course, there is no Thanksgiving in New Zealand. <laughs> Stay tuned for the December podcast to find out whether we celebrate Christmas. <laughs> ah, yes, but getting back to the November uh, issue, like I said, there's only a few articles we're going to discuss in this issue. And the first one we're going to talk about is called How Are Patient Order and Shift Timing Associated with Imaging Choices in the Emergency Department? Evidence from Niagara Health Administrative Data. And the lead author here is Stevenson Strobel, and they are with both Cornell and McMaster University, so United States and Canada. This is a pretty simple study overall, asking a pretty simple question. Is a patient more or less likely to have imaging ordered for them depending on whether they're seen early or late in a clinician's shift? These authors pulled 841,683 emergency department visits from an administrative database in Niagara Health, a regional health network in southern Ontario, and found yes. But the yes comes with some massive caveats. In order to do this type of analysis, the authors had to develop a bit of a model to try and account for the potential biases towards complex patients during the course of a shift. Most institutions, even those with a rotating patient assignment program, have some sort of an off-ramp mechanism where clinicians see simpler patients as their shift comes to an end. Simpler patients with shorter workups, in theory, <laughs> make it less likely a patient will require a transition in care or a handover and gets patient, uh, doctors out on time at the end of their shift sooner. So most people, either by their own nature or through the systems in place, pick up simpler patients throughout their shift, reducing the likelihood for advanced imaging. So when they do their unadjusted analysis, there's obvious the trends seen on the order of 6 to 10% less likely to have imaging ordered if you were one of the clinician's patients on a latter part of a shift. But these observations became attenuated once their instrument variable analysis was factored in. And then the authors also tossed in an analysis of the likelihood a patient might bounce back within seven days after being seen. And likewise, tried again to find associations with when in the course of a shift they were seen, as well as whether there was any association with whether they received imaging. And there's inconsistent results seen with respect to bounce backs and imaging with these adjustments. And it probably makes the entirety of any of the associations observed a bit precarious. So the idea here was to try and determine if there's some sort of decision fatigue element relating to time on shift, but I'm not sure here anything here is adequate to describe a true effect and whether any effects seen in this regional Canadian system would even generalize to other practice settings. Yeah. Yeah. I was really excited when I started reading this study because, you know, like you, I, I think decision fatigue is a real thing. And I was really excited to read something that was going to try to quantify it and demonstrate its existence. But as you said, unfortunately, this data is just far too messy uh, to come up with any definitive answers. And if you think about it, it's just hard to do, right? Like you just see how these authors came up against so many confounders and they did a great job trying to control for them. But I think in the end, there's just too many confounders on the complexity of the patients when they're seen on shift, so on and so forth, to show anything definitively. I was certainly disappointed by this. 
I mean, I think once upon a time I made a like, oh, geez, like this is like 16 or 17 years ago when I was in medical school. I worked with the Nationwide Children's Hospital, as it was called at the time in Columbus, Ohio, looking at whether physicians were more likely to make medication errors depending on the time on shift. But those were looking at like 24 hour on call shifts, not even just like this sort of decision fatigue on an eight to 12 hour emergency department shift, which definitely exists. But again, we would like to see there as an outcome, but I'm not even sure how you specifically approach these data unless you're using yourself as a control in some complicated fashion yeah 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 no i agree it's unfortunate all right so our next article is qualitative evaluation of quality measurements within em staff telehealth programs and the lead author is david whitehead so telehealth programs which have been growing for a while obviously had an explosion during the pandemic and we've just seen them grow measurably since then but there's very little data on their effectiveness, how they assess quality and safety and quality metrics. So these authors essentially to figure out how these telehealth systems are working and what they were doing to assess their own quality metrics and compliance metrics and safety metrics. So essentially what they did is they created a qualitative interview and they did this basically by identifying representatives of EM staff telehealth programs throughout the nation. And they essentially conducted interviews where they assessed the quality metrics that were used, that were captured, some of the barriers from care, and they then quantified these metrics into different domains and subdomains to develop basically a code book of what you're looking for or what these experts are looking for when they're looking about the, how they identify quality and metrics in their telehealth programs. And overall, they had eight qualitative interviews with telehealth health representatives. Seven of these were academic institutes. Five of the eight were urban. And the most widely used quality metrics related to patient and care teams in seven of the eight programs. And quality metrics related to access of care were seen in six of the eight programs, whereas effectiveness was also seen in six of the eight programs. Very few of the programs, only two, had financially related quality metrics. And so, you know, I, I think this is a brief study. It is so few interviews that it's hard to take anything definitive from this. I mean, it's such a small sample, but it does take home the point that since telehealth is such a growing field, we have to have certain ways to actually start grading its effectiveness, its quality, and just see how we actually go on to measure the effectiveness of these programs, both internally and externally. You know, We should prove that there is some benefit to telehealth and how it's used before we invest tons and tons of money into the infrastructure that is needed to grow these types of medical fields. So like I said, very small, very limited in the take-home messages you can take from this. It's a nice start to look at this field and what the data is that you're looking for. Yeah, I think you I think you captured it with that by mentioning that there's eight people in this little qualitative set of interviews. And the people who are response bias are be the people who are championing their telehealth programs, the ones who have put the most energy and invested the most into it and are interested in building out a telehealth program that's robust and high quality and all these things. And so these might be the destination as a model to some extent, if you're thinking about building out your telehealth program and how to measure it to some extent. But it's clearly not a snapshot of how telehealth programs are being developed and implemented and measured across the United States. This is just a, this is the tiniest of tiny subsets of, as it mentions, existence of relationships between our study team and respondents may also have contributed to a social desirability bias in responses. So it's like they're telehealth friends. <laughs> so it's a really tiny sample, but it does show a tiny snapshot of a tiny cross-section. I keep on saying the word tiny because it is of telehealth implementations in emergency medicine. <laughs> Can I say tiny again? <laughs> But yes, 
telehealth is in theory here to stay, depending on how the reimbursement and the financial incentives go around. And I think other health systems are obviously learning from the ones where the government payers health systems. I know it's being rolled out pretty extensively in Australia because they have such a huge rural population and widely distributed population centers. And we'll see how that goes. And maybe we'll get some reports and annals about their experiences as well. But moving on to the next article we're going to highlight from this issue, it's called The Prognostic Accuracy of Clinical Judgment Versus a Validated Frailty Screening Instrument in Older Patients at the Emergency Department. Findings of the Amsterdam Study. And the lead author here is Carmen S. Van Damme, and you might have guessed they're at the Amsterdam University Medical Center. And this is exactly the sort of study of which we need to see more. We have such a proliferation of new models, predictive instruments, etc., and they are rarely compared with either gestalt of clinicians or whether the decisions made using various models result in better outcomes than those made on clinical judgment alone. This prospective trial enrolled 736 patients aged greater than 70 years presenting to the emergency department and assessed them for frailty in three ways. They asked the treating clinician if they considered the patient to be frail. They asked the patient themselves if they considered themselves to be frail. And they applied the ISAR-HP, the Identification of Seniors at Risk for Hospitalization Patients, screening instrument. The outcome measure of interest was functional decline, institutionalization, and mortality combined as composite outcome at three months. Each predictor was terrible, and they're all basically the same terrible. The positive likelihood ratio of all of them ranged between 1.5 and 1.9, when useful is customarily considered 10, and their negative likelihood ratios ranged between 0.4 and 0.6, when a 0.1 is customarily considered useful. The authors break down their composite outcome into the individual components and try to combine the screening tool and subjective judgment and all the different permutations, but none made any substantial progress. So, unfortunately, this tool doesn't probably have any application in the emergency department. And, and well, neither do clinicians or patients. We've broadcasted on several sort of frailty evaluation tools here before, and they do generally have some predictive power, but like this here, not clearly adequate for effective use. And this is the first to actually test the tool against clinical judgment, a still ripe opportunity for better predictions to help guide post-ED protective interventions in frailty. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think the big thing here is that they actually they looked at this tool against clinical judgment, which, as we say in almost every podcast, nobody ever does. And we finally have an article here showing that a tool functions no better than the clinical judgment themselves. Now, of course, in this case, unfortunately, the clinical judgment didn't perform so well either. But I think that's because frailty is a hard thing. Like to use as a predictive tool, as a risk stratifier, you know, saying that patients who appear frail are at higher risk for certain outcomes, sure. But to predict outcomes, it's such a complex decision. I don't see how we'll define a tool that will show any of this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I just love the fact that they're comparing it to clinical judgment. We see so many tools that are promoting themselves so nicely. And then this is actually an implementation almost in the emergency department, in the real world, real clinicians, real patients, the predictive tool. It's just the same as, like I said, still need more research, but I'm so glad that they were able to find this tool and just say, well, why don't you just your own subjective assessment based on your own experience is just as good or just as bad or bad or bad, right? Just as bad. All right. So our next article 
is a randomized study of IG hydromorphone versus IV acetaminophen for older adults with severe pain. And the leered author is Shilpa Kohli. So, you know, this is an interesting topic because I think a lot of clinicians steer away from opioid pain medication in the older population because a fear of too high a safety profile or a fear of the side effects that come with the use of hydromorphone in this population. And so these authors thought to actually show what was the safety profile and what was the efficacy profile of hydromorphone in this population. Essentially, they enrolled patients older than 65 years old with acute pain, and they defined acute pain as onset within seven days of their ED visit, in which the treating physician thought they had severe pain and was going to use an intravenous opioid. And they randomized these patients to receive either 1,000 milligrams or one gram of IV acetaminophen versus 0.5 milligrams of IV hydromorphone. Essentially, they enrolled 162 patients. Nearly two-thirds of the patients were women, and the median pain score was 10 out of 10 on enrollment. So by 60 minutes, the acetaminophen patients had an improvement in the pain score by about 3.6, versus the hydromorphone group had an improvement in their pain score of 4.6. Now, both of these scores were above what we consider the minimum important difference. And this is the improvement in pain scale that we consider significant for patients to notice, which is about 1.3. So both of them had an improvement that was higher than the minimally important difference, but the difference between the two was only one. So essentially, they showed no real difference between these two pain scores. Additional analgesic medications required in 46% of the acetaminophen group and 38% of the hydromorphone group. So about an 8% difference. So this was not statistically significant. But importantly, the adverse events weren't really much in either group, either 7% in the acetaminophen group and 12% in the hydromorphone group. Again, a non-statistically significant difference. And there was really nothing so concerning. It basically included dizziness, drowsiness, headache, and nausea. There were none of the feared events that we think about with IV opiates like respiratory depression, somnolent, and obviously more significant. So all in all, I think this was a fairly good study. I think the big issue when you see these kind of studies is that we know when you're using IV opioids to treat pain, you have a very variable effect from patient to patient. And so, you know, if you look at the morphine data on this, about 0.1 milligrams per kilogram gets about 50% of opiate naive people out of pain. When you go up to 0.2, you get about 75%, 0.3 gets about 85%, 0.4 gets almost 100%. And so when you use a fixed dose like this, it's not surprising you're not going to have that great an effect. And in fact, most studies show that when you use a fixed dose like this, you have a similar outcome to medications like ibuprofen or acetaminophen or so on and so forth. And so you're limited in your effectiveness because you're not using a titrating scale of IV opiates rather than just a fixed dose. They also used a fairly small fixed dose at 0.5 milligrams of IV dilaudid or IV hydromorphone. But all in all, I still think it shows that at least done in this fixed dose form, it's a relatively safe medication. What happens if you were going to use a titrated scale where you would increase your IV opiate doses to relieve people's pain? It's a little less clear because they didn't actually study it. But in previous studies, at least in all comers, it's found fairly safe as long as you're titrating it rather than giving a much stronger dose up front. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit confusing and it's elderly patients. So the ones you're trying to avoid high dose opiates on. So I think it makes sense to be starting at a little bit lower of a dose. 
Ivacetaminophen has some analgesic effect. Intravenous hydromorphone has some analgesic effect. It probably has a greater analgesic effect than intravenous acetaminophen. Also, why are we giving intravenous acetaminophen when the mouth works? We should just use the mouth. (laughs) There's a lot of nonsense here. Uh, Please stop using intravenous acetaminophen unless you need to uh, in any event. But then some of the adverse event rates are going to be colored by the fact that you needed a little bit more rescue therapy in the intravenous acetaminophen group as well. So when you're rescuing intravenous acetaminophen with a little bit of opiate, then it's going to all converge in the end. So yeah, what you should probably do is actually just give some oral acetaminophen along with your intravenous hydromorphone, and you're probably going to get the best of both worlds and reduce the amount of rescue therapy, but that's another trial to start with. So I'm not sure what the takeaway is from this specifically. Yeah, I think you can say that when you give a small fixed dose of hydromorphone to elderly patients, you'll get a moderate pain relief that you can probably get close to by using an ibuprofen or acetaminophen dosing, and you get fairly minimal <laughs> side effects from it as well. What would occur if you actually used IV opiates the way they're supposed to be used and titrated them? Obviously, this study can't tell you. The other interesting thing that authors do mention, which we almost never appreciate, is that you can give more than a gram of acetaminophen at a time. There's plenty of studies out there showing that you actually might have a little bit of extra analgesic effect with either 1.5 or 2 grams of acetaminophen, whether it's oral or intravenous. But we're so used to giving one gram, I think, in most settings. I don't know what your practice is, but I feel like that's just like the customary dose. But we can actually do better. So, Ryan, if you try to over order over one gram of acetaminophen in my hospital, you will be bombarded and locked out by by pharmacy. And so, you know, it is almost impossible to over one, order over one. That's, gram. It's a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing. If well, you heard it here on the Animals of Merits Medicine podcast. You can give more than a gram at a time, and it actually works a little bit better. Anywho. Yes, we are starting the revolution. Well, on that <laughs> revolutionary note. We're starting the revolution now. <laughs> I think we should wrap up this episode of the podcast. So as always, until next time, this was Rory Spiegel and Ryan Radecki. If anyone has any comments, questions, or concerns, we can be reached at annalsaudio at asep.org. But until next time, this was the Annals of Emergency Medicine Podcast. So long.